Good morning. Um, I wanted to, um, before we get into the text of Matthew 16, we've been going through Gospel of Matthew, kind of calling it the life of Jesus according to Matthew as we travel through from January up through Easter, which is coming up. And man, I wanted to start first um, just by saying this sermon was tough for me. Um, this was a hard one for me to put together. Sometimes sermons come together quickly and naturally, and this one I really struggled with. And uh, I think I I think I wrote it out fully and then fully deleted it and then fully rewrote it about at least three times this week. Um, and the struggle I experienced with it is that as I pressed more and more into the text of Matthew 16 that we're going to look at, um, I, I kept experiencing kept experiencing this feeling that what I needed to talk about this morning was so crucially important, but also so hard to articulate, so mysterious, um, and so challenging at the same time. It was so important, but so challenging, and that's why I just kept, like, deleting and rewriting. Deleting and rewriting is tough. Um, and what we're going to look at, and this will probably make sense to you, is uh, we're going to look at a very famous command from Jesus in Matthew 16, in which he says, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross. Um, and that sentence, that command, it seems so simple. But then when you press into it and start thinking about what does that mean? What does that look like? It's challenging. It, like, cuts to the soul. Um, and it's so hard to articulate. How, how exactly do I, t- do I stand up here? And how do I talk to us about the powerful and profound mystery of denying yourself, of losing your life, of setting aside your life, and, and finding it at the same time? Like, how, how do I talk about that? And that... Frankly, it just feels like it's a mystery that's kind of beyond me to, to be able to talk about. I can't quite wrap my mind around it. I can't wrap my words around it. I can't give you a formula. I can't say after you, when you leave here, do these three things, and then you'll lose your life, and then you'll find it. <laughs> that's just not how this works, right? I don't think. Um, but gosh, it's so important. It's so important. It feels crucial. Um, it might be, I think, one of the most important things for us, actually, especially in our culture, which the idea of denying yourself culturally, that's just so completely counter to everything that we're kind of taught uh, about how to live, right? So the combination of those two things, the urgency, the importance, the like challengingness of this, and the profundity of it, the mysterious nature of it, the combination of those two things leave me just in a position right now to just pray that God would use these words I have um, this morning, that God, whatever I speak, that God would use it to stir up something in us as a community, to, to call us to follow him, to call us to do what he's calling us to do. Um, so I'm going to pray for, I'm going to pray for the sermon <laughs> in that spirit. Um, so pray with me. Lord, I just, I pray that more than anything else, I pray that the beauty of Christ would just shatter everything else this morning. Beauty of Christ would be paramount to anything I say, and that we would no longer, in the words of Bonhoeffer that I'm going to read later, that we would no longer even see the difficult road of discipleship. We would only see Christ as we step forward. Um, so, Lord, make that a reality amongst us this morning. Thank you for this community and thank you for this time that we have. Amen. So we're going to look at this, specifically the second half of chapter 16 of Matthew. Go ahead and, and flip to that if you have it nearby. I have, uh, I'll have sections of it on the screen as well. Um, one, I'm only going to note one piece of context here, and that is simply that it's, it's arguable that this, what we're going to look at, 
is happening in kind of the peak, one of the peak moments of popularity for Jesus and his disciples, right? Um, last week, if you were here, I talked about him feeding massive crowds with loaves and fish um, and healing and casting out demons. Like, he was doing all this amazing stuff, and crowds were just th- thronging around him and pressing in on him. Um, so it's just a kind of a peak popular moment for his public ministry, for his reputation. And that, especially, deny yourself and pick up your cross. Think about that comment in the context of immense popularity, right? I think that's a really important thing to kind of put in the back of your mind as we look about everything that's going to happen. So everything that's gonna, we're going to talk about it comes in that context. Um, so starting in verse 13, this is the NIV. Uh, it says, When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a significant city, named after Caesar, hence the term Caesarea. So the fact that it's named after Caesar indicates some of its cultural kind of background, right? Not, not a Jewish primarily area. When he came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. A couple things I want to point out here. The phrase son of man is a really important phrase. It's a really important title. Um, It's a reference to a vision. There's different places it comes from in the Old Testament, but a really important reference is Daniel 7. There's a a vision, kind of a revelatory vision in Daniel chapter 7, in which one like a son of man is coming on the clouds. And it's, it's a vision uh, that's loaded with future hopes. It's a vision that's loaded with God acting in a decisive way to bring about God's rule. Um, that's the vision in Daniel 7. And so when Jesus, and actually, incidentally, the phrase Son of Man is Jesus' kind of most used phrase to refer to himself. Um, so when he, when he talks about using the phrase Son of Man, that's an intentional word choice that's loaded down with these especially Jewish hopes of God's renewal work, God's restoring work, God's redemption. The phrase Son of Man is really, really loaded. Um, And so when Jesus says, who do people say the Son of Man is, um, it implies a few things. First of all, it implies that people are talking, right? Who are people saying the Son of Man is? So that implies that people are having discussions about the Son of Man, the the one who's going to come and do God's work. Um, that, hence the context I just mentioned, of Jesus' own popularity. He's causing a stir, he's causing a buzz, he's causing conversation and reflection. There's, there's people talking about what's going on around him and potentially, or apparently using this language of son of man. Um, he's, just, he's just making waves. Um, I, I don't know if anyone has watched the, uh, there's a Netflix show, I think there's only one season, it's a couple years old now, it's called Messiah. Has anyone watched this? Anyone heard, yeah, Joey's seen it. Um, Jordan seen a couple people. Um, I, I don't know that I'm like necessarily full-throated recommending the show. Um, I liked it, uh, but the point though, the point that one thing I think it did great, really well, in my opinion, is if the the concept of the show is that there's a messiah-like figure that shows up in the Middle East, but it's today, and he you know he brings up a following and starts preaching and doing miracles, and and it's all about kind of how would the world react to that happening today. It's a really interesting concept, but the point. I'm trying to make as it relates to this, is that what I think that show did really well is it brought out this feeling how people would react to the types of things that Jesus did. So people would react with confusion, skepticism, excitement, some bewilderment, some like, is this guy crazy? Is this guy for real? I hope he's for real. You know, like that whole complicated mix of emotions. I thought that show evoked that really, really well, and I couldn't help but think about it as I'm thinking about this particular interaction. But that's the kind of feeling that's happening around Jesus. Like, 
is this for real? Is this really happening? Or no, this can't really be happening. That's got to be something. It's not going to look like this. It's going to look like this. Those kinds of conversations are happening around Jesus in the midst of his popularity. And so when he says to the disciples, who do people say the son of man is, he is working to expose or get out into the open what kind of expectations the people around him are carrying, right? Get that out to the open. What is going on here? What are people talking about? What, it's like him asking, it's kind of like him saying, how are, how are the people here expecting God to show up today? How are people expecting God to, what's that, what are people expecting that to look like? Right, think, think to yourself, how do I expect God to show up? What do I expect that to look like? Do I expect it to look like a Billy Graham figure, right? Do I expect it to look like something else? Do I expect it to look like a political movement? Do I expect it to look like, whatever, you know, whatever. We all have that. And that's what he's getting at here. And the answers they give are not, they're not super surprising if you think about it. They list off some famous prophets. They list off, list off John the Baptist, Elijah, right, Jeremiah. So the point here, I think, is that the people around Jesus, the Jewish people, the Israelites particularly, they're expecting another great prophet who's going to bring about a renewal movement for the people of God. And I think it's fair to say they are expecting that renewal movement to be primarily first for Israel, hence the Jewish prophets that they're listed. They're expecting a renewal movement for, for Israel. That's the expectation. This is really important. This is really important groundwork for what Jesus is going to talk about next and what's going to happen next. Because I think it's clear that the disciples are very, the, the closest followers of Jesus, who he is talking to right now, they're very excited about these expectations, right? They're really excited about Jesus' reputation here. Why? Because they're his inner circle. They're the ones who are the closest to him. So, of course, they're excited about the idea of being with the next Elijah. They want to be the ones that are in the closest to the next great prophet who's going to be the hero who does this whole renewal movement. And that, by the way, to pause on this, that should be super relatable, right? That's, that should be a relatable feeling to all of us. Who does not want to be ex- associated with the next great person, right? Be in the entourage <laughs> of the next great person. Who wouldn't want that? Have you, ever, have you ever had a connection in some way to a respected or influential individual this is where the phrase name dropping comes from. You know, like people just love to, and I've done this. I'm smiling because I've done this. Like you just like find ways to work in a conversation. Like, yeah, I, I know a person who knows that person. You know, or like, or I met that person, right? We love to be connected to influential people. I think that's just a super relatable human feeling that the disciples are having in this moment. When he says, who do people say the son of man is? He's drawing out these kinds of expectations and conversations. This is so important because of what's about to happen. Because then he turns to a sharper question. Then he says, so first question was, what are the people saying? Then he says, but what about you to the disciples? Who do you say that I am? This is a sharper turn. And Simon Peter answered right away, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. So, in response to this sharper question that Jesus gives, Peter right away confesses belief. He says, you're God's son. He's saying, you, this is kind of my, I don't know, interpretation of it. 
You are God's anointed one. You're, Peter's saying, you're the one that's going to accomplish God's renewal for God's people today. You're the one that we have all been looking and waiting for. That's kind of what Peter is saying here. Like, it's you. The first question was, people are talking about these great prophets, and Peter says, you are that person, Jesus. And at first, if we stopped there, it seems like uh, Peter is hitting a home run, right? He is actually the first disciple to correctly identify, at least verbally, to correctly identify Jesus as the Messiah. And Messiah means anointed one. That's one way to understand the word Messiah. Linguistically. Um, And in fact, Jesus does give him a blessing for this response. He declares Peter as the, and he's going to go on. This this is a massive whole sermon on its own. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but he does go on to declare Peter as the foundation of the church. This is another famous, like, on, uh, on this rock I will build my church in the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That's where this this comes from, that chapter. He declares, in response to this declaration from Peter, Jesus says Peter will be the foundation of the church. And I think that has something to do with Peter's willingness to declare Jesus' name and Jesus' public role as the Messiah. I think that that's what is going on there. But as we'll see soon, very soon, it's possible to use, and this is challenging, it's possible to use the right words about Jesus it's possible to use the right language about Jesus, but have completely the wrong idea, completely the wrong understanding. It's po- if Peter did it, it's possible for me to do that. It's possible for you to do that. Use the right words, but have the wrong idea. I just thought this was a perfect time to use this. You keep using that word. I do not think it means what you think it means. Um, after this interaction, Peter, Peter's declaration, I'm going to skip down a few verses down to 21. says, from that time on, that's an important little detail. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter, same person, upon whom the church will be built, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, Jesus, Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. There's a lot going on here. The phrase from then on seems to indicate in the text this is a hinge moment. This is a turning point in Jesus' ministry and his work. I think in the context and the flow of this chapter in particular, now that the expectations of the people and of the disciples have been exposed and brought to the surface, the expectations of what the Son of Man would do and who Jesus is, those expectations have been drawn out. Jesus is now doing some pretty radical confronting and deconstructing of those expectations that have been verbalized. So keep in mind what, we sa- what I said a minute ago, that people are expecting a great prophet who's going to lead a renewal movement for Israel. The shape that renewal movement could take is there's lots of theories about what people were expecting there, but nevertheless, they were expecting this prophet figure. That's what was kind of in the atmosphere at the time, and Jesus, in the face of those expectations that have just been vocalized, Jesus says, actually, I'm going to suffer at the very hands of the political rulers that you think I'm going to liberate you from. I'm going to suffer at their hands unjustly, and they're going to kill me. 
and then I'm going to be raised to death, or raised to life three days later. He is pummeling their expectations, essentially, directly. His, his messiahship, his anointedness, involves him willingly walking into his own suffering and death and knowing that it happens. And John, by the way, John, this is an important, I, co- I ref, ref, refer to this all the time, but John chapter 10 says that Jesus laid his life down of his own choosing. He was not battered around by the forces of politics and human sin. He walked into it. He controlled that decision. And he's trying to explain this to the people who are closest to him, who are the ones who want to be connected to the great ruler or the great prophet, the next great hero. And Peter's response to this, to Jesus' kind of deconstructing of their expectations, Peter's response is a stern rebuke. That's super important. The Greek, the Greek is very clear about that. This is not, this is not Peter uh, seeking dialogue. <laughs> this is not him saying, I, that's not my understanding. You know, it's not him being like, wait a minute, I'm a little confused. This is Peter saying, no, that is not correct, Jesus. Peter is confronting Jesus' confrontation of his, ex- of his expectations. Peter really thinks, I think the text is pretty clear, Peter really thinks Jesus is wrong-headed about this. Like, he actually thinks Jesus is wrong. And he's, Peter is wrong about that in a way that's really dangerous. And in fact, and Jordan preached about uh, this weeks ago, the temptations that Jesus was offered at the very beginning of his ministry in the, in the wilderness from Satan, Peter is mirroring that, that temptation. When Satan essentially said to Jesus, you, you don't have, I, this is my, my version, Satan was basically saying, you don't need to go through the cross, right? I can give you the power, power right? I can give you the, the nations right now. Satan was kind of saying, you don't, you don't need to do that. Peter is mirroring that, and I think that's precisely why Jesus uses the term Satan. He says, get behind me. Jesus' response to Peter is pretty harsh. He's saying, don't put yourself between me and what I must do. I, I, I think Jesus is saying, in a way, don't make this harder than it already is. You think this was an easy conversation for Jesus to have with his friends? And in the spirit of relating to Peter here, it's kind of, at least I, I grew up in like, you know, the Sunday school world and the church world, and it's kind of fashionable sometimes to beat up on Peter, or I don't know, to make fun of him because he was so blustering and he always made mistakes. Um, I prefer to relate to Peter. <laughs> um, and I want to pose a couple observations right, right here at this juncture. So one, don't forget that Peter is a friend. It's really easy to forget that too when you're reading the, the text in the abstract, but Peter is a friend. And one layer, I have to think, one layer of all of this is just his raw and visceral desire not to see his friend go through what he just said. He doesn't want to see his friend Jesus go through suffering and death. So that I can relate to that. But secondly, more troublingly, I can relate to the fact that Peter has also staked his own life and reputation on this man, Jesus, in a very tangible way. He left his livelihood to follow this man around. He's connected to him. And by the way, this all sets 
in relief. If you know where the story goes, you know Peter's going to deny Jesus at the most at one of the darkest moments. Like this, I think reveals the tension around being connected to this man who's going to be branded a criminal and shamed. Peter has staked his own reputation and, and his, his his well-being, his life on this man Jesus. And his expectation is that he's he's put his reputation on a popular hero who's going to inaugurate a successful movement. And that's a pretty different prospect from hooking yourself to someone who's going to be branded a criminal and walk knowingly into his own death and be shamed publicly for it. Which one would you, which path would you pick? <laughs> right? Which person would you rather be connected to and associated with? And I'm going to lightly touch the third rail and talk about politics here for a second. So just brace yourself. But I'm going to talk about right and left, so I'm going to be equally, crit- I don't know, critique. Um, so here we go. I can remember, I, can't, I just can't help but think about political culture when we go into this, our political culture. So two examples, one from the right and one from the left. I can remember, I can remember watching clips in, I think, uh, whatever, like, like 30 years ago or whatever, whenever the last election happened. Um, so I can remember watching clips of when Ted Cruz announced he was stepping down from his campaign. Um, there was, you know, in the primaries and all that stuff, and I, can, I just remember seeing, I don't even remember how or I stumbled upon them, but... Um, I saw clips of him when he gave his speech that he was stepping out from his campaign, and you could hear, if anyone saw this, you could remember this, you could hear pained shouts from people in the room, like, no, you know, like he said, I'm, I'm done, and people were like, no, you can't stop, you know, like there was like this visceral emotional response from people in the crowd that were just wrecked by him saying he wasn't going to keep running. Now, from the other side, I can also remember seeing shots of people in the crowd uh, the night that Hillary lost, in her um, room, and maybe many of you saw these shots as well. I remember seeing shots of people in the, Hil- uh, the crowd supporting Hillary literally crying, like weeping, right, the night she lost, like tears coming down people's face. And my point here, maybe you, relate, maybe you related to one of those and you thought the other one was foolish, right, and vice versa, whatever. My point here is not to make fun of any of the people in those rooms or to shame any of them. My point is to draw out the fact that this is what we do. We can't avoid pinning hopes on leaders, being swept up into movements that feel bigger than ourselves, that we're going to be on the right side of history because we're connected to these people, right? And then when we do that, we feel crushed when those leaders can't and don't do what we expect them to do, what we invested in them to do. And in a weird way, it's all about us because we want to be the ones with the reputation that picked the right people. So actually we're crushed because they're letting us down because we care about ourselves. (laughs) So try to empathize. If you can relate to that feeling, I definitely can. Try to empathize with Peter's pain and confusion in this moment. Say, no, Jesus, this will not happen to you because you're my friend and maybe more subconsciously, because I, you're supposed to be a hero because I connected to you and I gave up a lot to be with you, which is true. Peter did give up a lot to be with him. And I think all of these dynamics, all of these dynamics are why Jesus is taking such pains to correctly define what his messiahship means. I think that he is drawing out the misguided expectations of the people and the disciples, and I would say us, as well. He's drawing those misguided expectations out to the surface so that they can be corrected. It's like 
It's like we needed to draw an infection to the surface to get rid of it. It's like drawing it out so they can be corrected. But those expectations need to be corrected so that we can know what it actually means to be following this man, what it actually means to be associated with him, so that we can then find life in him correctly because life cannot actually be found anywhere else. I'm going to repeat that because it was like a lot bundled up. Our misguided expectations of Jesus need to be drawn out and corrected so that we can know what it actually means to follow him so that we can actually find life in him correctly. So that God can get the glory by saving us and renewing us in the world in the process. And all of this finally sets up where I started, which ends with the call to discipleship here at the end of the chapter, starting at verse 24. After all of this, Jesus said to his disciples, this confrontation. So again, picture. Peter rebukes Jesus. Jesus rebukes Peter and then turns to the rest of them. They all saw what just happened, right? Jesus and Peter didn't go into a soundproof room and have that exchange. They were right in front of everybody. And then Jesus turns to everyone there and says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Let that sink in for a second. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? And I want to end here. I want to comment on two aspects within this command. I want to comment on the denying yourself command, and I want to comment on picking up your cross. Because for Peter, and for the other disciples in this immediate context around Jesus, for them... The phrase to, for, for them to deny themselves, for Peter to deny himself in that moment, it meant setting aside his own preconceived hopes and expectations for what Jesus would do, right? Allowing Jesus to define those hopes and expectations instead of his own pre, presuppositions. Setting those aside. And bundled up within that was the hopes that Peter had for his own life within those hopes, Right? This is where I think the point starts to drill into the soul. It's like Peter had understandable hopes for himself that he wrapped up within his hopes for what Jesus would do. And Jesus says, you've got to deny that because you've got to let Jesus be who Jesus needs to be. Peter needed to trust that Jesus would know what was better than even his own hopes and expectations even Peter's own hopes and expectations. Even despite the confusion that that produced in Peter, Peter needed to trust that Jesus still knew better. And I, man, I really think the same thing is true for us. Are we willing to similarly let our own hopes and expectations be, be deconstructed and messed up and blown up in favor of connection to and association with Jesus no matter what? even if that looks confusing and produces, produces real pain, momentary pain at least. And I want to drive, drive this point just, just a little further. So like Peter did, do you have certain hopes and expectations about how following Jesus and being a Christian will actually benefit you? Do you have those? 
Are you willing to potentially be wrong about those expectations and have Jesus correct them? Are you willing to trust? I'm trying to avoid Christian jargon and cliche here. It's really tough. But are you willing to trust that being connected to Jesus really is enough no matter what? I don't say that lightly. Are you willing to let go of those hopes and expectations to kind of release your grip on them and to put them down and to pick up a cross instead? And that's another word. Cross, cross is so ubiquitous in you know, sermons and devotionals and all that. Understandably so. But it, de- it deserves a little bit of reflection lest it become overly familiar. But at the time, when Jesus says, pick up your cross, at the time, Rome used crosses and crucifixion to publicly leverage their power and fear to keep people in line, to keep subjects in line. This is a known thing. There was at least one pretty famous rebellion in Jesus' own lifetime that was crushed by Rome, and they lined up over... Historians think there were at least 2,000 men crucified along the same public thoroughfare, right? This is like 295, right? Like, crucified people along the highway. This is what Rome would do. A rebellion would be crushed. They'd all be rounded up. The people who led it and participated would all be rounded up and crucified publicly along ways that people could not avoid it. There's There's a depiction of what this could have potentially looked like. It was impossible to travel along the road without hearing the pain, the agony, the death cries of these people. And also, it's not just about physical pain, it's about shame, public shame, right? Seeing their disgrace. Jesus probably walked along this road after that rebellion happened and saw all these people. So for Jesus to say, pick up your cross, that has gotten so loaded with kind of Christianese jargon, like I said. But for Jesus to say, pick up your cross to his disciples, he was saying that to people who walked along that road. He was saying, yeah, I am telling you to willingly pick up this visible, public, unavoidable, noticeable symbol of disgrace and death. The world is not going to understand why you would, why in the world you would pick that up of your own volition. The world's not going to understand, and you are going to be tempted to put it down and try to find another way around, just like Jesus was tempted. And I think, obviously, we don't have literal crosses in our time, but we do have those experiences, the experience of disgrace, of shame, um, right? Increasingly, and this is, this is just a small, this is a sliver, <laughs> of kind of the experience, I think, to be, to be clear. I'm not trying to make an equivalence here. But I do, I would say that it's true that increasingly in our culture, a willingness to embrace the label Christian, let alone the label evangelical, you know, whatever that means these days, but a willingness to kind of be aligned with those kinds of labels and terms is to open yourself up to all kinds of misunderstandings and accusations and shame. And um, I, feel, I feel this Jill and I are really immersed in the life of our neighborhood, and I feel this every single time that innocent question comes up. So what do you do, right? And that's just a small example. That's a small example. The, 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 
social, I don't know, pain or misunderstanding or embarrassment I feel in that moment is like a fraction of a fraction of what Jesus is talking about when he says, pick up your cross. But my point is, if I feel it in that tiny moment, what did the disciples feel when Jesus said, pick up your cross and follow me and deny yourself? If I'm barely willing to suffer that small amount of embarrassment I just said, how much less willing am I probably going to be to pick up an actual cross like Jesus did? It's really challenging. This is why I struggled so much this week. This is feeling so, so challenged. But this was really important, and this is where I want to end. When Jesus said, this is so important. I hope that I articulate this well. When Jesus said, pick up your cross, he was also saying to his disciples, and he's also saying to us, and he also modeled it. He said, I am doing the same thing. And in fact, I'm doing it before you, and I will not depart from you as you do it. So walk with me. I promise you will find life on the way. I promise you will find life, and it's going to be confusing. But I am with you. That's what was bundled up in Jesus' command to pick up your cross and deny yourself. And I want to end. My, I, I feel the limitations of my words. So I'm, I want to end um, almost in a prayer. This can, this, you can take this as a prayer if you'd like. Uh, but I want to end with some powerful words from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who I've talked about before. Um, he's one of my faith heroes, my spiritual heroes. I admire him immensely. And I want to end with some words from him, because not only did he write powerfully... Does everyone know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was? Um, his life is worth knowing about. Um, he was a... Intellectual, a, the- a public intellectual, a theologian, and a scholar in um, Nazi-era Germany, who um, resisted the Reich and um, had the opportunity to leave Germany twice and be safe, and both times went back and ended up um, in a concentration camp. And he ended up dying, probably being hanged in that concentration camp. Two, man, it's hard for me to talk about this. Two weeks before that camp was uh, liberated by the Allies. Um, so not only did he write powerfully on this concept of denying yourself and picking up your cross, but man, he lived it. He literally did give his life to resist evil in his time. So I, wanna, I want you to listen to this extended quote from him. I really want you to listen to this. You can close your eyes if you want. You can, like I said, you can receive it as a prayer. But I want, I want to read this through slowly, and then I want to transition us to communion after, after I finish this. It's a lengthy quote. But he said, to be called to a life of extraordinary quality, to live up to it, and yet to be unconscious of it, is indeed a narrow way. To confess and testify to the truth as it is in Jesus And at the same time, to love the enemies of that truth, his enemies and ours, and to love them with the infinite love of Jesus is indeed a narrow way. To believe the promise of Jesus that his followers shall possess the earth, and at the same time, man, listen to these words, the same time to face our enemies unarmed and defenseless, preferring to incur injustice rather than to do wrong ourselves 
is indeed a narrow way to see the weakness and the wrong in others and at the same time refrain from judging them to deliver the gospel message without casting pearls before swine is indeed a narrow way. The way is unutterably hard and at every moment we are in danger of straying from it. I'm going to say that sentence again because it's powerful to me. The way is unutterably hard, and at every moment we are in danger of straying from it. If we regard this way as one we follow in obedience to an external command, if we are afraid of ourselves the whole time, it's indeed impossible. If we regard it as something we have to follow as an external command, and if we are afraid of our inability to do it, then yes, it is impossible. That's what he's saying. But if we behold Jesus Christ going on before us step by step, we shall not go astray. To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. To see only him who goes before and no more the road which is too hard for us. To see only Christ and to not even see the road that is so hard to walk. Once more, all that self-denial can say is, he leads the way. Keep close to him. He leads the way. Keep close to him. Let me pray for us before we take communion. Lord, the way is unutterably hard. I confess that for myself. I confess it on behalf of us as a community. It is unutterably hard. And so thank you for coming and breaking open the way, walking the way, inviting us with you. Lord, I pray we would take profound comfort that you do this out of love for us. Profound comfort that you loved us to come show us the way, to come show us what it means to empty yourself and walk towards the cross. Lord, we could not do this without you. We never could do this without you. Salvation would be impossible without you. So Lord, I pray we would take comfort in those words and that you would show us what it means to deny ourselves of our hopes and expectations in favor of what it truly means to know you. You do that. I pray you do that work in us this morning. In your holy name, amen. Um, we're going to move to taking communion together. Um, if a couple LT members could come up and hand out the elements, that would be helpful. And then we're going to sing one more song. And one thing I want to say about this, um, as you get the cups, um, hold on to them and wait until I instruct you to, thank you, as I instruct you to open them, we'll take it all together. I think it's important as it's something we do together. Um, communion, also known as the Eucharist in certain traditions, it's a physical thing we do to remind ourselves of the truth that I've been talking about. It's one way that we cling to Christ as we journey forward. It's one way that we take a step because he instructed us to, to, to do this regularly, he instructed us to do this in remembrance of him, 
he instructed us to do this to point to what he did, right? This, this silly little wafer and plastic cup. It, it points to broken flesh and spilled blood that he shared with his disciples. And then he instructs us to continue to do as an act of remembering who Christ is and what he has done and the road he has walked and then the road we are to walk with him. And so as you do this, I just encourage you to do it reflectively as an action of stepping forward in the spirit of what I read from Bonhoeffer. Maybe even, maybe even prayerfully do this as an action of setting your eyes on Christ, setting your eyes on the, on the spilled blood and the broken body, taking your eyes off yourself and even off of your own incapacity but instead just putting your eyes on him. So I invite you to uh, open up the top of the cup now and take out the wafer. And then open the juice. And just as Jesus um, broke the bread and gave it out to his disciples and said, this is my body broken for you, uh, I invite you to take and eat. And so too, take the blood which he poured into a cup and gave to his disciples and said, this is the blood of the new covenant. I'm taking drink. And let's sing one song together in response.